Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit about your academic background. Uh, academic background is uh, probably not the norm for a historian. As in my undergraduate degrees in zoology, uh, invertebrates, actually. Uh, but that obviously didn't work out. It took me a little while to figure out um, after about six years of doing various other things from fast food to teaching scuba diving that uh, history was the way to go. Uh, so, a master's degree um, at UNC Charlotte, which is now just Charlotte, uh, with sort of a broad range, and then PhD from University of Kentucky, uh, focusing on early modern republic and military policy. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your areas of academic interest and your research. Yeah, areas of academic interest, it, it evolved uh, to a degree when I first started graduate school. Uh, what I said to my advisor uh, was that I wanted to be a Civil War historian. And the advice I got, which was very sound advice, you'll never get a job, <laughs> uh, which is true. And if I had said military historian, I would never get a job. Uh, so her recommendation was if you want to do Civil War history, you have to call yourself a 19th century American historian, which again was very sound advice. Uh, Fortunately, though, um, the first job I was able to get was a uh, short-term appointment at West Point uh, where I had to teach military history, and that one year really has opened the door for everything since because uh, my previous job was a military historian at a civilian school, and that's about all I taught. And those years of experience uh, and that background is what opened the door to, to come here to, to CGSC. Okay, and you're, you're, you said your previous experience. You were down in uh, Louisiana, Mississippi? Down in Louisiana at a, a regional state school called Southeastern Louisiana University, uh, which fortunately had a master's program in history, so I was able to work with graduate students. Uh, it was a very good experience. Um, I enjoyed working with the students. There were some outstanding students there, uh, along with then the downsides of being at a regional state school things like not having a raise for 10 years. Uh, so there were a number of reasons why it was much more attractive to come here and, and being able to come to CGSC, work with the kind of students we have, which are essentially graduate students, um, is what I always preferred and, and always enjoyed the most. So it was an easy transition. Yeah, and I, I am a proud graduate of several regional state schools. So yes. I, I understand you on both ends, the good and the bad. Yep. Yep. So uh, tell us about what you teach here at CGSC in addition to the core and AOC classes. Yeah, in addition to the, the core and AOC classes, um, the one electives course that I typically teach is the American Civil War. No surprise since, since that, that's what I do. Uh, and it, it's almost a more straight up Civil War history class um, in that we do a lot of, of looking at causation uh, and the lead up to. Uh, as well as the war itself, and especially with the war, it's not simply operational, but a good bit of 
civil-military relations and, and how the politics on both sides is influencing the progression of the war and the operations in the war. Uh, so sort of broadening it out from just um, operational history. Yeah, that's a good transition to my next question, which is, so you, you study a massive conflict, obviously the deadliest for America. <laughs> you study a conflict that has been very current in American political discourse. Um, so how do you fit your research teaching specialty into kind of the larger enterprise of teaching American and, and other um, officers? Yeah, well, my, my research uh, focus is on broadly defined military leadership, uh, which has helped define some of previous publications, uh, more specifically on, on U.S. Grant and looking at his leadership style, how he went about operationally and dealing with subordinates, which it's a pretty easy fit then of looking at, you know, what's Grant's strategy for uh, the, the Civil War once he, once he becomes overall commander, looking at it through the lens of things like Ensway's means, right? Is, is, the end, is, is his strategy using the ways and means are available to achieve the national policy end state? Are there connections? Are there, are there disconnections? So it's fairly easy to take those concepts. Um, and the, the, the challenge, as you would agree, I think, is when you're teaching your specialty area, it's not to get too, too far down into yeah. the details. Sometimes it's easier to teach what you don't know quite so much about uh, because you don't want to go so deep. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's a pretty easy transition for what I specialize in to, to the coursework. What would you say to the, the kind of naysayer voice that says, oh, that stuff is old. It's, you know, we'd better off study more modern conflicts. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the question is the, the more recent, the more relevant. Uh, to some degree, uh, I wouldn't disagree with that, um, especially if we're talking about technology and doctrine that's based on a certain kind of technology, certainly um, at chariots and, and, uh, and bows and arrows, right, not going to be as relevant. That, that's not what we, we focus on, of course. We are, are looking at uh, much larger strategic concepts like endsways means, uh, like adaptability. Uh, those are almost timeless. Um, yeah, how does um, a commander, and I think Grant is a nice example of, of this idea, and you can go to any era, how does a senior commander deal psychologically with massive casualties? Uh, and as a, a previous um, general here pointed out to the student body, uh, we don't have senior leadership who has dealt with that. And how, how does a senior leader psychologically prepare for having massive casualties, but then continuing on with operations the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And the, the senior leaders, uh, general officer's point was that the only way really to prepare, try to prepare, is to read about those who in the past who, who have faced that. Grant's a good example of that. And again, you can pick out from any era a commander to read about how did they respond to that? How did they go about functioning as a commander and not just say, we're going to stop? Yeah, that's a fascinating point. And if I could drill down on that a little bit more, let's let's take an example, right? If I remember correctly, it's 100,000 casualties in the Overland campaign, maybe on both sides? Uh, total for both sides, roughly, so yeah. how <clears throat> do Grant and Lincoln deal with killing and wounding that many Americans? How do, how do they respond to it? How does it affect their strategy, their operations? Yeah, which, which gets to that, that, how do you get to that, that mental framework, that mental state? And for Grant, uh, we've got some pretty good evidence going back to early in the war. 
with one of the first operations, um, not the first, but one of the first operations he undertakes to capture Fort Donelson, which is on the Cumberland River in Tennessee. Uh, he moved very quickly after capturing a previous fort, Fort Henry. It was less than 10 days between the capture of those two forts. There is some question at the time of, is it not time to regroup, bring up more supplies, make sure your lines of communication are well established. And, and his observation was that he believed he could do that day with 5,000 what it would take him 15,000 to do next month. Uh, and so Grant's belief was that by continuing to move forward in the long run, you'll save lives and save casualties. The problem with that, the challenge with that, that you just don't know. You don't know what the calculation is going to play out. So for Grant, when he does uh, come in overall command later in the war, he and Lincoln are of the same page, it's gonna take the same thing. In, in terminology we might use today, they both recognized that, that the way home was gonna have to go through Richmond and you were gonna have to take a lot of casualties for that to happen. I don't know that every commander could make those decisions. I you know, question a time if I was ever in that position, could I do as Grant did? Okay, this battle you've suffered 18,000 casualties in two days, well, we're gonna do it again in a week. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could do that. It takes a special kind of leadership, I think, to do that. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> speaking of that, um, we have a great advantage with somebody like Grant in that he wrote pretty extensive memoirs, which is not something a lot of commanders did. So, it, first of all, isn't it an advantage to have the man's own words? And if so, what kind of advantage is it? Uh, I think it is an advantage, uh, because if, if you don't have uh, the individual's own words, it requires in speculation especially on this topic that we're talking about here of the mental framework, the, the psychological part of it. Uh, we, even, even with an individual's writings, you still don't know how truthful they're being, uh, especially you know, after the fact, but it's certainly better than just having to speculate with, with someone who we have, we have no records from. Grant, at least, we have some sense of an idea of what his logic, what his reasoning was, uh, his justifications, even if it was just rationalizing in his own mind, and that's maybe what has to be done. Maybe that's the lesson that you have to take away, is you have to rationalize this to yourself to be able to function and continue. Yeah, so the problem we have with Caesar and all, the, all of the commanders who wrote their own memoirs. You never know quite if you can trust them or not. Right. Yeah. But again, I would take that over having nothing and just right. having to guess. Right. No, that's a fair point. So let's look at this from the other side. And this is, a, in some ways, a delicate question, but I think it's one worth engaging. How does the modern mind American, American officer handle Robert Lee, the Confederacy, the people who might have tactical operational lessons to teach us? Yeah, Lee, I think, um, to, to be of use to the modern, current, and not just maybe military officer, but anyone associated with, with national defense and, and looking back to history, Lee, I think we, we almost have to separate into two individuals. Uh, one, to your point, of the tactical operational commander and looking at his decision-making on the battlefield, how he deploys his troops, uh, his, his relationship with his subordinate commanders, his relationship with civilian uh, leadership, how he functioned in that sense as a military commander. Separating that out from Lee as the Confederate military officer. Uh, obviously, something of a controversial topic today. Um, I'll be forthcoming uh, and say that um, Lee's positioning uh, in our national memory 
uh, I think needs to be almost restricted to the operational tactical. My objection to Lee, in other words, uh, for honoring Lee uh, is that he took up arms against the United States. Uh, when we look at photographs of, of Civil War commanders and uniforms, he is fighting against those who are wearing the uniform of the United States. You look at them today, someone like Grant, his rank designation is the same as it is today. Uh, and I have difficulty getting past that. Understood? The uniform he once wore. The uniform he once wore. Lee twice took an oath to protect and defend the United States against all adversaries, both foreign and domestic once as a cadet and once when he was commissioned as an officer, and in both instances he decided, no, he would not abide by that. I understand Lee's logic and his reasoning, but nevertheless, he took up arms against the United States, and I have difficulty th thinking that we as a country need to honor an individual like that. Yeah, and I, I've struggled with this as a, as a native Southerner born in Texas and kind of birthed with the, the lost cause idea, but I, I do think you're right in that there is Certainly in, in modern historiography, there's an effort to separate kind of the art from the artist, if you will. Uh, let's, let's shift to a more lighthearted uh, topic. What is your favorite Civil War battlefield and why? Shiloh. Why? Shiloh is my favorite Civil War battlefield. Two reasons. Number one, today if you visit Shiloh, uh, it is a destination you have to decide to go to. It is two hours away from anything and everything. It's hard to find a restaurant near Shiloh that's closer than, than 20 miles. So the battlefield itself is almost, almost pristine in that there's very little incursion of urban growth or development. What were fields are fields, what are forests are forests. The Park Service has done a pretty good job of returning at that. So as you drive around the battlefield at Shiloh, it gets confusing very quickly, just as it was at, at the time. Uh, the second reason uh, I like Shiloh is what Grant does at Shiloh. And uh, those familiar with the Battle of Shiloh recall that it's a two-day battle. Uh, the first day, Confederates attack early in the morning, drive Grant's army almost back to the, the Tennessee River, nearly destroying Grant's army. When virtually all of Grant's subordinate commanders are asking for orders to retreat or suggesting orders to retreat. Grant makes the decision, no, he's, we're, we're staying and we're going to attack in the morning. And as I typically describe it, that's the point that everything in Grant's career that he's done up to that point informs that decision. He understands the situation, he understands the condition of his army, of the Confederate army, and he believes attacking in the morning, seizing the initiative, will bring victory. And he was right about that. And again, as I typically describe it, that's when the grant we know becomes the grant that we know. If Grant had not made that decision and had retreated, we would not be talking about Grant today. He would be another failed Union commander who was shuffled out to somewhere in western Iowa or the western plains, and he would be irrelevant. The war likely would have turned out quite differently. So for a couple of reasons, Shiloh is, is my, my favorite Civil War battlefield. All right, very good answer. Dr. Labor, thank you. Thank you. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.